Well, hey, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. Uh, we'll have an abbreviated time in the Word this morning. I'm not going to be sharing from Galatians, uh, but we are going to we are going to get into the Word of God. Um, you know, I was telling Lee and Zach you know, years ago when Pastor Chuck Pastor Chuck comes to Christ uh, as a child, but you know he was he was in church ministry, and then uh, in the early 70s he was in his 40s uh, when Calvary Chapel. Uh, Costa Mesa was founded, and all these hippies that started to come to the church, and they were coming in their bare feet and cut off jean shorts, and uh, next thing you know, they had to put a tent out because there just wasn't enough room in the church for all the people that were coming. And Pastor Chuck at that time, you know, he was he was just going verse by verse through the Word of God, but the but such a real revival came, and we pray for revival, but a genuine revival came. That there was a time when Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa was able to give 70% of all the tithes and offerings to global mission. 70%. I would dream for that day here. Now, we give a lot higher percentage than, than, than the average church in America does of our budget, uh, but we are nowhere near even close to being able to do that. We would love to do that, but we just can't. Now, if God sends a genuine revival to Calvary Chapel Richmond, it can happen. It's just God can do all those things. Uh, he can take care of the numerical aspect, the financial aspect, the spiritual aspect. Uh, but the reason why Chuck saw that is just people were touched by the Word of God. And so this morning, we're going to look at a passage, you know, all the things you heard from Lee and Zach. What will really make the difference in your life and my life is when we fall in love with God. You fall in love with Jesus, you won't need, I won't need anyone to tell us to reach the world. The Holy Spirit will in us tell us to reach the world. I want to look at a passage this morning. I hope it's an encouragement to you. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Uh, it should already be marked for you. Psalm 89. I'm going to read one verse. Psalm 89. Again, we're in our normal uh, Sunday message. Our Sunday study is in Galatians. We won't be there today. Uh, but Psalm chapter 89, one verse, verse 14. This is the verse of your Bibles are open, Psalm 89, 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth go before your face. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that your spirit would now illuminate your word. You've already been speaking to us this morning in worship, the reminder of what you want to do around the world in reaching souls. And now, Lord Jesus, we pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to fall upon our ears, our hearts, me, your servant, these, your sons and daughters, and Lord, that your word would go forth with great power great comfort, great conviction. Lord, whatever each heart needs, you know. And Lord, you would use these remaining minutes to the honor and glory of Jesus Christ and that we would be strengthened in the inner man. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I want to read something to you from Pastor Lewis Neely. He is a, I don't know how old Lewis now, is now. He's probably close to 80. He lives in Sacramento, California, Warehouse Ministries. A fiery pastor. Uh, but listen to what he says. He says, 
One of the first things to remember is that God is interested in everything in your life. I've heard people say, well, God's not interested in this little thing. I'll take care of it myself. God is interested in everything in your life. God is fully cognizant of every thought we have, every longing, every desire, every joy. God is fully engaged and has an awareness of every aspect of the life of every human being. You say, man, I can't grasp that. Well, I can't either. I'm not God. I'm not even God Jr. I'm just plain old human being with limited abilities who just believes and trusts God and trusts his word. He goes on to say this in the next, in the next uh, page. We reach the point where we believe we can supply all our own needs. Isn't that true? You go back and look at the book of Kings and you read about this king did this and this king did that and they accomplished this and did whatever was good and evil and whatever. But all those verses, when it talked about those kings, it always ends with the words, and he died, and he died. If we view God as mildly interested in us, we're way off base and we'll be mired in defeat. If we view God as a low priority in our life, and we're just apathetic towards God, we're headed for a fall, and we need to repent. If we view God as uncaring about our situation, not just India, not just Africa, not just South America, but our situation, we'll become bitter and depressed, even when we seemingly, seemingly have a better life. If we view God according to his word, though, we're going to see victory. We're going to see joy. We're going to see God move in ways we've not seen before. And I want this morning, if you're taking notes, to look at this passage from this context. If you're taking notes, our view of God changes everything. Don't you believe that? Our view of God changes everything. There's people that don't believe God exists. There's people that believe that God uh, can't do much. There's people that believe God is a tyrant. You name it. There's all these different views. But we want to look at the view of God. What he says in these verses, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth go before your face. This is a description of God's throne. It's a description of God's character. And the first thing I want to look at in this verse is the righteousness and justice. By the way, we had a great school night. I'll get to that maybe at the end. (laughs) That was this past Wednesday night. The foundation of God's throne, righteousness and justice. Now, this is not a complete summation of everything that makes up the throne of God. Understand uh, that that we we hear, for example, in the New Testament, talks about we can approach the throne of his grace, right? But the psalmist writes here, the foundation of the throne, righteousness and and justice. Now, righteous, what does it mean in the Hebrew here? It means, this is going to be deep, what is right? In the Hebrew, righteousness here means what is right. Now, the question is, what is right? Well, God defines what is right. We don't, we don't make that definition. God defines what is right and what is wrong. Now, God, not only does he do every single thing right, He can't even be tempted by that which is wrong. And James 1.13 says, For God cannot be tempted by evil. Our flesh naturally gravitates to sin. You don't have to teach a young person to want to sin. They already will want to sin. 
you do have to teach people not to sin. We have to be taught what is right and what is wrong and to be encouraged to do what is right. And only when we've been born again do we then receive the Holy Spirit and then have the righteousness of God placed in us and placed within us then we have the Spirit that is now leading us to do those things which are righteous and right, which are pleasing to God. But we still have our flesh too, don't we? can't remember how your driving week went this week, you'll remember one time that the flesh came out. The flesh wins too often still. But God by nature is right, but not just right, he's perfect. Everything God does is righteous. Everything God does is perfect. Everything he does is pure. Every single thing he does is holy. Matter of fact, in Revelation 4.8, we get a glimpse of the throne room of heaven, and what is it the angels are saying Nonstop, never stopping, except for one little brief time in all in the in, in the tribulation period, where the seals are opened. Holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Around the throne of God, the angels never stop proclaiming this one attribute of God: holy. They don't say love, 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 although God is love. They don't say power, 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 although God is power. They don't say wise, 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 although God is wise. They don't say gracious, 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 although he is. They don't say mighty, 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 although he is. No, God's transcendent characteristic is holiness. Holiness. When Moses was given the instructions for the high priest's garments, there was a turban that was supposed to go on the high priest's head, and there was a gold plate right here. You know what it said? Holiness to the Lord. God could have put anything there, but it said holiness to the Lord. That was what the high priest had to wear when he go into the Holy of Holies. The concept that purity, perfection, and righteousness come from God can't be forgotten. We cannot forget that purity righteousness, perfection only come from God. Justice, on the other hand, it says its foundation is righteousness and justice. Now justice, what does it mean in the Hebrew? It means the act of presiding over a case, proper, fitting, right. Now this would, if there's anyone that is qualified to sit over all cases in the universe, It's God. Proper, fitting, presiding over a case, and right. Understand that God is not only right, he's not only perfect and holy, but every decision he makes is right and perfect, even when we don't understand his ways and timing. Now, God makes decisions we don't understand in our own lives too, doesn't he? Why were they sick for month after month? Every single person in the family. You ever been there? You ever ask God, why this in your life? Why does this continue to happen? Why does God allow certain things to happen? In Deuteronomy 32, 4, it says, He is the rock. His work is perfect. All his ways are justice. A God of truth and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Now, You start to meditate on a passage like that, and our kind of complaining spirit can fade. We start to 
picture God for who he really is, not who Satan tries to convince us or our flesh tries to convince us he is. There's not only not a hint of injustice with God, but he will someday correct every injustice. Isn't that reassuring? There's a lot of injustice in this world. There's a lot of injustice in this nation. There's a lot of injustice in history that still hasn't been fixed. But God will fix it. Vengeance is his, saith the Lord. Only God can do this. God is the only one we would ever want with absolute power. Amen to that? He's the only one that has absolute power. Thank God. But he's the only one we would want with absolute power, which, of course, he possesses. And he can use that and will to mete out justice, and he'll always act in a right manner. Can you imagine any flawed human being given absolute power? Now, in history, some people have had kind of absolute power, some Roman emperors, some uh, you know, different dictators and tyrants in world history, but not really absolute power because, you know, unlike God, they still have to go use the bathroom and things like that, right? So they had limitations in their humanity. God has no limitations in his power, none at all. He doesn't take a break. He doesn't need to sleep. You can't have a coup in the middle of the night because he doesn't take a nap. Absolute power, self-sustaining. Even good men and women with just significant power have abused it greatly, haven't they? But with God on the throne, we can trust him to be just. We know he'll be righteous. We can trust him to be just. Understand that because he is just, to stand before him on judgment day, having rejected his son Jesus and the sacrificial substitute that he provided for sins, well, that will be met with eternal condemnation. That will be just. Which brings us to the second half of this verse, the glorious goodness of God. We have his righteousness and justice, but what about this mercy and truth that verse 14 speaks of? Mercy and truth go before your face. It would be perfectly right and just for a perfect and holy God to punish all of humanity based solely on our guilt. Amen? Now, that's true. I know that if you're new to the uh, scriptures, you, you might still struggle with that statement and say, well, I, I, come on now. I've never done anything really, really bad. God judges you by his perfect holy standard. We deserve the judgment of God as much as a willful criminal deserves the judgment sentence that they receive. But we see here what goes before God. And that offers hope and salvation to the entire world. Mercy and truth go before your face. It starts with the mercy of God. When God descended as a cloud in Exodus 34, verses 5 through 7, he descended a cloud to speak to Moses. Listen to what the Lord says of himself. This is God speaking of God. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping, mercies for th- keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but by no means clearing the guilty. Did you know that was God's testimony of himself? This is Yahweh speaking in the cloud about himself. If you ever wonder what does God think about himself, there it is right there. Let me read it again so you understand what God says of himself. The Lord, 
the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and by no means clearing the guilty. Holiness is the essence of God, but his mercy displays his great love for you and for me and for all of humanity. When Moses was given the instructions for the Holy of Holies, God said that he would meet with Moses where? At the mercy seat, not the good work seat, not the Moses, you're my number one guy seat. Not the school of hard knocks seat, not the, hey, you have done a better job than everybody else seat, mercy seat. It wasn't works and effort that Moses would receive, but the mercy of God. Jesus, when he walked the earth, and he had blind people, diseased people, broken people, call out to him, and these were the words, and they're recorded more than a few times that were said to Jesus from people that were blind with leprosy, diseased, and they cried out with these words, Jesus, have what? Mercy on me. What is it that made the human soul cry the same thing? Have mercy on me. Especially when you're like leprous and you're dying, you might think, you know, they they should just be bitter. No, the soul was crying for mercy. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant Mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So Peter makes it clear that Jesus comes with abundant mercy. This was, he was on a mercy mission to the world. You see, the mercy of God goes before his face via the sending of Jesus. God the Father, so in other words, he sent his son from before his face. The mercy was sent by the Father Before the face of the Father, he sends Jesus for all that would call upon his name and send their lives. But notice that the mercy is tied to truth. They're inseparable. I know that truth sometimes does hurt, doesn't it? But they're inseparable. The mercy of God is not a cheap, worthless thing. It is available, but only to those believing in truth. It can't be believed halfway. It has to be believed in the truth, receiving that truth. God will never lie. He's not like a man. He cannot lie. Because he is so merciful, he gives us the truth so we can what? Experience his mercy. That's why he gives us the truth. It would be impossible to love his mercy and at the same time despise his truth. That makes sense? It would be impossible to say, I love the mercy of God, I just don't like any of his truth. You can't separate them. To despise or ignore his truth would be to simultaneously disregard his mercy. So if you despise the truth of God, then you reject the mercy of God. Imagine that a man, listen to this, imagine that a man finds out that he's related to a multimillionaire. Didn't know, long lost relative, man finds out he's related to a multimillionaire. A year later, he meets him at a weekend family function, and in a conversation, the millionaire finds out this man has some severe financial debt. The man is upside down on his car loans. Uh, He's upside down on his car loans. He's behind on house payments. Creditors are calling constantly. Now, some of this was incurred through some unfortunate circumstances, but most of it was due to just him living beyond 
his means, buying whatever he wanted, keeping up with everyone else, and using credit cards and loans wherever and uh, whenever and wherever possible. And he never gave to God or anyone else either. But this relative wasn't just wealthy. He was a merciful and gracious person, even willing to overlook past errors and mistakes. In fact, finding out that this indebted man, one of his cars was actually in the shop with a $2,000 in repairs pending, he told him to call him on Monday from the repair shop, and he'd pay over the phone for the repairs. The man forgot to call on Monday, but he did call on Tuesday. The millionaire paid the repairs anyway, really wanting to help this man and his family. The following day, they spoke again by phone. The millionaire relative says that he'll pay off every single cent of his relative's debt and put $50,000 in his savings account if he goes home and immediately cuts up every single credit card calls and cancels every credit card, and cancels every unnecessary service that he's currently using. You know, with cable TV, this, that, and the other. He asked only that the man take pictures of the cut-up credit cards, send official bank statements of every debt, so the exact amount is quantified, send a copy of all the canceled account and services, and write a hand written letter on how he will handle money differently going forward, including goals of saving and giving. Admittedly, the millionaire relative tells him this process will probably take four to eight weeks. But in that time, he should be able to get all the right documents, gather all the required documents to be able to send along with the handwritten letter. Now, the man in debt, his relative that's in debt decides that these requirements are a little too pushy. But he does want the debts paid and the money placed into his account if this offer really is legitimate. So to hedge his bets, he instead types an email thanking the millionaire, complimenting him, even inviting him to dinner next time he's in the area so he could have dinner with his family. He also sends a picture of three of the cut-up credit cards even though in the phone conversation he said there were eight. But never sends any official statements, and in lieu of the handwritten letter, he types a few of the changes he's going to make in the email. The man in debt wasn't fully convinced his millionaire relative would even deliver on his promise. Yes, he had paid the auto repair bills, all $2,000, the very day they had the conversation. But this was, A, a few too many steps for his liking, and B, kind of hard to believe that he'd really helped this much. So he hit send on the email. His millionaire relative receiving the email realizes that this is far from what was discussed. Replies to the email and says, I'm sorry the terms were not appreciated, but I wish you well in your life and in your endeavors. A few weeks later, the man in debt finds out that three of his cousins, two of which were in worse financial shape than he was, had their entire debts paid off and 50000 placed in their accounts. They had each followed the required steps to the letter. His cousins were desperate for the help, and the required steps seemed more than reasonable. They had each had a smaller but still significant little debt paid, just like the $2,000 auto repair before they were given the same offer. 
They had seen the trustworthiness of their relative. They sensed his character. And they had no reason to doubt his trustworthiness. Ladies and gentlemen, we too really need, both before and after salvation, God's help, don't we? And we have more than a millionaire relative waiting to help us. And if we're desperate for it, if we'll run to the truth, God will help us. You see, to the extent that we appreciate and see our need for God's mercy, to that extent we will believe the truth that God has laid out in his word. If you're here this morning, know for certain that God wants to help and intervene in your life and in my life more than we want him to. Understand that. Say, well, it's possible that God wants to intervene more than I want him to because you don't know how much I want him to. But you don't know the mind and heart of God, neither do I. To a certain extent, we only, uh, we under- only understand the edges of his ways. But we can trust what he says about himself. That's the point. We can trust what he says about himself. If you don't know him as Savior, he wants to save you more than you could possibly know. If you're in pain, he does want to heal. If you're in despair, he wants to give you joy. If you're in a battle, he wants to give you victory. If you're in fear, he wants to give you peace. If you're in guilt, he wants to give you forgiveness and cleansing. If you're tired, he wants to refresh you. If you're willing to kneel and believe, he'll lift us up. We may need to wait a little bit. It doesn't happen all the time exactly when we want. Listen to what Peter writes in 1 Peter 5, 6. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. The in due time part is the part we not, don't really like, right? We're good with the lift us up part. The in due time we would like to be in charge of. Trust me, there's many times I've wanted to be in charge of the in due time. I've had challenges battles, attacks from Satan that you don't know about in my life, that I deal with, that you have ones that I don't know about in your life that we would say in due time. But do we believe what it says? If we humble ourselves, that he really will lift us up. But notice what it says, that we have to humble ourselves to be lifted up. Moses had to take off his shoes because he was on holy ground. He could say, I've never done that before. That wasn't his response. It was he understood the character who he, was, who he was speaking to. And I want us to look at this last thing as we come to a close. Remember and respond. I guess someone already beat me to it. Thank you. There's a Chinese proverb that says this. It says, unless we change direction, we are likely to end up where we are going. True, huh? The first thing we need to... I like to use the term re-remember because a lot of things we kind of know. We need to re-remember them. Peter wrote, I write to you these things though you already know them. Re-remember. The first thing we need to re-remember is who God is and what he's already done. It's looking up to that throne of grace, up to that foundation of righteousness That place of mercy is looking up to his throne of righteousness, mercy, and grace. And this seems simple, but yet it's profound when we do it. 
Taking our eyes off of ourselves is truly life-changing. I'm going to say that one more time. Taking our eyes off of ourselves is truly life-changing. It's healing, and it's actually a source of power that we do not know until we do it. Do we truly believe this? Do we truly believe that taking our eyes off ourselves and looking at the throne of God is life-changing? Jesus, uh, or the writer Hebrews in uh, Hebrews 12, 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Psalm 123, 1, unto you I lift up my eyes, O you who dwell in the heavens. The fact is, when things are going well, we tend to look around. When things are going well, we tend to look around at how we can keep them going well. When things are going well, we look around. How can we keep everything going well? And when things are really difficult, we tend to look inward and say, why, why, why? Regardless of the circumstance, God wants us to look what? Up. Not, not around, not in, but up. Jesus, look up your redemption draweth what? Nigh. Amy Carmichael, she actually lived in India. Uh, most of her ministry was there in India. In, in uh, her devotional, Edges of His Ways, listen to what she says. She says, have you ever noticed when you were in heaviness, you were always tempted to think of yourself, your uselessness, your failures, your nothingness, yourself in one way or another? I have known this temptation and have constantly found it tormenting others. That's in India. That's in Europe. That's in South America. That's in Kansas. Yes, even Kansas. All over the world, we have this poor me attitude that develops in us. It's a complaining spirit. But if you look at the verses after verse 14, look down in your Bibles in Psalm 89. We only read verse 14, but look at the next couple of verses. What starts to take shape here? Starting verse 15, blessed are the people who know the joyful sound, exclamation point. They walk, O Lord, in the light of your countenance. In your name they rejoice all day long, and in your righteousness they are exalted, for you are the glory of their strength. And in your favor our horn is exalted, for our shield belongs to the Lord. Go back to even verse 1 of this chapter, Psalm 89, verse 1. I will sing of the what? Mercies of the Lord forever with my mouth will I make known your faithfulness to all generations. Do you see what the psalmist is saying here? He's saying when you understand the throne room of God, your view of God will take you off your view of yourself. You get your eyes off yourself and on God, joy begins to spring forth. Look at those verses. Read them all this week. Read them during the week, verses 15 through um, all the way down through verse 21. The whole chapter is amazing. It's a great chapter of strength. Turn with me. I want to, uh, how does this happen in our life? I want to get a little more prescriptive as, as we want to understand how do we do this in our life. Turn to Psalm 77. Go, go left a few uh, chapters to Psalm 77. How do we make this happen in our life? I say, uh, you know, I want that kind of joy. How, do, how does looking up at the throne, I need more, Tim? I need more of understanding. Practically, how do I do this? Good news is the psalmist tells us how to actually do this. I mean, very prescriptive on how this works. When we remember who God is and we respond by looking up and we keep looking up, 
God will move on our behalf. One of my favorite verses, and I quote it often when I go for a run or I'm on a prayer walk, is Job 35.5. Look to the heavens, see, and behold the clouds. They are higher than you. I love that verse. I challenge you, when you start going outside, every time you look up the clouds, just start quoting Job 35.5. Look at the clouds. They're higher than me. Because what, the, what Job was saying is he was constantly remember that God is bigger than his problems. God is bigger than this. God is bigger than that. Always. The clouds are always there to show that we're small. God wants us to look up because then we stop trying to fix everything ourselves. We start looking to his throne. One of my favorite passages. But look at Psalm 77. This is a great passage. And it gives really prescriptive guidance how looking to the throne of God actually works. In verse 10, um, this comes after the psalmist. It's written by, um, actually it's written by Asaph, but um, the psalmist here, in the first eight verses, first nine verses, he's crying and groaning out in a lot of pain. Things are not going right, nothing's going right, maybe a physical pain, maybe an emotional pain, maybe some kind of fear, anxiety, stress, depression, or all of the above is happening. And look what he says in verse 10. He says, And this is my anguish, or trial, or difficult time, or pain. This is my anguish, but look what comes next. But I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember, you hear the word remember here? Three times in a row. I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High, I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will also meditate on all your work and talk of your deeds. Your way, O God, is in the sanctuary. That's the throne room again. Who is so great a God as our God? You are the God who does wonders. You have declared your strength among the peoples. You have, with your arm, redeemed your people. Case closed. What is the psalmist saying here? Practically, not just practically, literally, God says, if you want to see me bust you out of whatever prison is in your mind, body, and spirit, he said, you start thinking of what I've done in the past. I mean, again, so I'll, go, I'll be praying. I'll just start talking about, you did this for Moses. You did this for David. You did this for Joshua. You did this for Gideon. You did this for David. You did this for Paul. You did this for Mary. You did, go on down the line. You know God loves that? That's what he's saying. I, he's not saying just figuratively. He's saying literally, if you, it's like a tonic. It is like an antidepressant pill times 100. He's saying, you start doing this, and the next thing you know, look at, look at the last verse, in, uh, and Moses mentioned again here, but last verse in this chapter is 20. He said, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. You realize that Moses would have given up a long time ago if God wasn't his rock? It works. I'm telling you, God is telling us, say, this week in your prayer closet, or whatever it is, you start looking up and God says, change your view of me, and I'll change everything else in your life. And it will not happen overnight, but you will start to see it happen, and God will start to speak to you. And you just continue, when you have all these thoughts that come in, you start saying, but you crushed Pharaoh. 
but you stomp Satan like bag of potato chips. I don't know, whatever, you know, uh, at, at Calvary. You crushed him underfoot. And God's like, yeah, I did. That's what I'm talking about. You really start praising God for what he, he says. Not only will I remember the works of the Lord, your wonders of old, I'll meditate and I'll talk of them. I'm telling you. You start talking, telling your kids. Kids say, ah, I'll never pass this class. Are you kidding? Samson with one jawbone, a thousand Philistines. I mean, story. You, you, they're not just for the kids over in the modular and child and children's class right now. These stories are for us. They're for us to remember. They're for us to meditate. And for us to say, you know what? Jesus sent them out two by two. They went city to city, and they healed, and the dead were raised, and the sick were healed. All these things took place. And we start to say these things, and God says, now, do you think I've got you? He's the same yesterday and today and forever. We've been talking about believing. Do we believe these things? Christian, start quoting the names of Jesus. Just start, I mean, just quote... Just say, and he shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Don't stop saying it until all of a sudden the other stuff runs out of the room. Just keep saying it. That kind of repetition is not vain repetition. That kind of repetition is wise. Just keep talking to God and say, your name is mighty. Your name is holy. All of these things, they really do work. That's what the psalmist is telling us. Verses that express his name. Verses that express his power. You've got to memorize some verses to meditate on some verses, by the way. You can't meditate on what you don't know. Write them on the dashboard of your car and say them all the way to work. Christian, when God becomes small, our small problems become large. And our large problems become enormous and seemingly insurmountable. But that's a lie from Satan. But when we focus on God and take our eyes off ourselves, we focus on his righteousness, his justice, his mercy, his truth, the blood of his son, and all he's done, and the lives of the saints that went before us, and the lives of saints that are alive right now, everything really does change. He is on his throne, and the relief valve and the healing balm will be released when we praise his name, when we worship him in holiness. He will raise us up then into his peace, into those very clouds you're looking at, He's going to someday meet us in those clouds. Isn't that awesome? Those very clouds will meet Jesus in. I don't think that's a coincidence, by the way. If you have no interest in God, if you're apathetic towards God this morning, if you're in love with the world, you need to get on your knees and look up as well for a different reason. Right? A lot of people, yeah, everything's going great with me. I just got a bonus. I'm doing good. We're on vacation next week. This, that, or the other. I'm... But those things can fade quickly. Get on our knees and look up now. I'll close with these words by Lancelot Andrews. He says, essence beyond essence, nature in create. Framer of the world, I set thee, Lord, before my face. I lift up my soul to thee. I worship thee on my knees and humble myself under thy mighty hand. You know, it's true, the, the hymn that said, when I had awesome wonder, right? Consider all the Worlds thy hands have made, right? I see the stars. I hear the rolling thunder. Then when you start saying how great thou art, and it's not just words, but it's in here, our view of God will change everything else. Amen? Let's close in prayer.
Father, we bow before you. We humbly bow before you. Lord, we're not even worthy of the next breath we're taking, but you're gracious. You, say you, you said in your word that you caused the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. You also said that you're not willing that any should perish, that all should come to repentance. Lord, I can't even, I can't kind of comprehend your mercy. I can't comprehend your grace. I can't comprehend your power. But Lord, I know it's true, and we see just the mere edges of it, and we see more than enough to trust you. We see more than enough to know that what you did for David, you'll do for us. What you did for Moses, you'll do for us. What you did for Paul, you'll do for us. Lord, what you did for Jesus, you'll do for us. That you'll let us finish our course, finish our race. And Lord, I do pray that those that, uh, Lord, have a special need here this morning, that, Lord, you'd answer that prayer. You'd deliver them and show them. Show me, show them, show us your great power in our life. But, Lord, that we would not take your grace and then sit on it, but we would go take it to the lost and dying world around us, whether they be around the world or around the street or across the hall, whatever it may be, Lord, we pray that we would take the goodness of God that you've given to us and take our eyes off ourselves. And as we put them on you, you'll put them on others. And Lord, that would be life-changing, and we need more of it. Lord, you've changed us with salvation, but we need more of your changing power in our life. So Lord, cause us this week to look up. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.